We're going to look at a number of scriptures tonight, so I'm not going to have you turn right away to any one in particular. As a pastor and as a result counselor for a lot of years, I've had a lot of people tell me this phrase, I I don't really struggle with bitterness. I've heard that statement over and over again, yet I find the power of bitterness to be far more common than we'd ever think. And even those which seem to be a third of us seem not to struggle with bitterness. I would encourage them and all of us tonight, not that anyone wants you to have a bitterness problem, but it might be part of our lives far more than you think. Um, I love the book by Charles Dickens, Great Expectations, and I've given this illustration before, but Miss Havisham is one of the characters in it, and uh, she was stood up at the altar and the story, when Pip goes to see her, is that for decades she didn't do anything with the, you know, as a rich woman, she didn't do anything with the banquet hall or the food or the cake or the decorations or the dress that she wore. And she, nothing changed. The time and the clock had remained the same for decades. And in talking to Pip, she says <clears throat> the famous line that mice have gnawed at it, meaning all the food on the table still, And then she says, and sharper teeth than teeth of mice have gnawed at me. And what she's referring to is the 30 plus years of bitterness um, for being stood up by her fiance. Um, If you read the story, you'll see that she sits in the darkness, the heavy drapes in her uh, big, uh, you know, banquet room have never been drawn. She refused to have light and sunlight shine in there. Um, She's really just a picture of what an extreme case of bitterness can do to someone's life. And and perhaps you're here tonight in person or online, and you have felt the pain of what I would call maybe the bite of bitterness, sharper teeth um, of bitterness. And they've left their marks on you, not on your body so much as your soul. And uh, you felt the bite of bitterness in your marriage. And and you struggle with that because of things that have happened. And We're going to see tonight that one of the most common places, prevalent places that bitterness takes place is in our own homes. And maybe not only your marriage, but your family. Maybe there's some things as you look back as an adult um, that cause bitterness or or make you tempted to be bitter with your parents or people that were in your life. Maybe it's health conditions that you chronically or or regularly face. And you know, bitterness goes after our faith most of all and, and our trust and our relationship with God. Someone said, and I quote, bitterness destroys people's lives and their relationships. I think that is true, and I think it's why the Apostle Paul uh, puts bitterness in a grouping of a number of other sins in Ephesians 4, including wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. And why in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, that bitterness is you know, put as an opposite of being kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Um, that's what bitterness is all about. Um, bitterness is a reality, really, for all of us. If it's not something that you've ever struggled with, I would guess if you live a normal life that you're going to struggle with it at one point or another. Let me differentiate between two things uh, as we begin to get a hold of gr- bitterness as God sees it. There are what I call bitter providences, Bitter providences are external circumstances or situations that are bitter, that cause sorrow, pain, 
and even frustration and anger. Bitter providences, things that God in his sovereignty has put into our life. Um, and they are tests at time for us. Uh, and then there obviously is a bitter problem. Uh, bitter problems come when bitter providences on the outside get on the inside. Um, all of us are going to have bitter providences, things that we don't like and are painful and sorrowful in our lives on the outside. The problem with bitterness is not the difficulty or the harshness of what happens on the outside so much as our response to it, and therefore bitterness gets on the inside, and that's where it becomes a real problem. I don't know if you're familiar with William Cooper. He is a hymnist and a poet of the 1700s. Um, he was a very good friend of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, he wrote hymns in our hymn book, um, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Um, perhaps the song that he's most famous for is the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Um, in it, he wrote these words, middle stanzas, every stanza in this hymn. You should have it and read it. It's fantastic theologically and in every possible way. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble, feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And those words penned by him are not just good poetry, but he lived them. Um, William Cooper battled severe depression literally his entire adult life. There were numerous occasions, and if you ever get a chance to read his biography, you'll see them in detail. He faced many frowning providences, many bitter providences that came into his life. His mother died when he was six. He was almost engaged to a girl that he loved dearly, and she broke it off, and it never amounted to anything in his life. I mean, on just about every level in his life, he had some sort of major disappointment. Um, he actually tried to kill himself on four or five different occasions. Um, but yet, he held on to his faith. But it wasn't without a continual struggle. It was a battle uh, against bitterness. And that's the title of our lesson tonight, the battle against... It, it was a battle for him because his external bitter providences would at times weave their way or work their way inside of him and into his heart and because, cause bitterness problems. But let me tell you tonight up front, bitter providences have all kinds of causes. Bitter circumstances, bitter situations, bitter people, uh, all kinds of things that we cannot control. Um, but what we can control is making those bitter providences or allowing them to be bitter problems, or that we become bitter people. And I want you to know tonight, when we go through all of this, I want you to keep in mind that you have a choice in all of this. In fact, let me say it stronger. You have a responsibility before God to choose to be sweet and not bitter. And, and that's what we want to look at, because bitterness on the outside is a providence. Bitter on the inside is a problem. So we're going to look at these five case studies tonight, of people who battled bitterness. And look at them one at a time. And the first kind of pass through until we get to the last one, I just want to show you some of the bitter providences and the forms that they can take in your life and so that you can find out where they're coming from, what they look like, and how other people dealt with them. So we are going to turn to um, a little poem in Genesis 49 that was 
written by Jacob or spoke by Jacob, written for us, including his 12 sons and their future, and Israel's future. And one of them has to do with Joseph. And so if you're keeping an outline, number one is Joseph, our first case study, had bitter, he had bitter providences. And here's what Jacob, how he describes them in verse 22, if you'll look there. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. It wasn't always like that. Here's what it says. The archers, here's our word, bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. And so you know as well as I do, you know who the archers are, right? They are his, 12, his brothers, right? And they're the ones who bitterly attacked him. They shot him. So he, here's the picture. What does it feel like when people bitterly treat you, uh, treat you bitterly? or attack you, or shoot at you, or harass you. It feels like being shot with an arrow. That's what it feels like. It, it's pointed. It's sharp. It's cutting. And I'm sure that Joseph felt that pain when his brothers sold him into slavery. If you read the Psalms and a short rendition or summary of that incident, it says he cried out to them and begged them not to do it. So it wasn't like he was just resigned to it. It was a it was tragic. It was an emotionally tragic and unsettling, to say the least, uh, situation in his life when he, at 17 years old, was sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites. And so it was very difficult for him. And not only that, but when he got there to uh, be put in prison for a crime that he did not commit, and, and then eventually to be forgotten in prison for those years and all that took place for him. So here, here's the first case study, and where does it take place? Well, he struggled with bitterness at home. He had bitter brothers, and they took their bitterness out on him. And, and by the way, if I could just make an application, um, notice that the problem was in the home, and, and a lot of it was due, can you hear me tonight, parents, because of the way they treated their children, and how they had favorites, and how Joseph got the coat of many colors, and that he was allowed to stay home, and all the other brothers went out and worked and did other things. And there was a lot going on in the dynamics of their family that brought about that bitterness. And so let me tell you this, when bitterness takes place in a family, it's a very difficult thing. And it's not always just the children who are at fault at it. Many times it's the way that they are raised and disciplined or not so much by their parents. And so nevertheless, the home was a battleground for bitterness. It really was, and how they treated each other. Um, and friendly fire, people in your own home, you don't expect that. You don't expect a source or cause of bitterness to be the people that you love the most or that you're in your family. But it also, the sharp teeth, or in this case, can I say the sharp arrows often are from the bows of our families. And so uh, it, they had rivalry in their home. They had jealousy in their home and everything else going there. So Joseph is, can I say, our first case study of bitter providences. And if you read anything about Joseph, and we're not going to go into detail tonight. We've done that even fairly recently here. But if you read Genesis 45 and you read Genesis 48 and, and, and 50, you'll see that as bitter as the providences that God brought into Joseph's life he never became a bitter person. He never became unforgiving. In fact, he, went over, he did more than just forgive his bitter brothers. He took care of them. 
And he took care of their little ones. And he provided for them for many, many years. And even when his brothers thought when his father died that they were really in for it now, he was kind to them. And the reason is, is because he believed, listen, in God's sovereignty and his goodness. You meant it, listen to this, you meant it. See, you purposed it for evil. That's his brother's. But God, in contrast, Genesis 50, 19, but God meant it, same verb. They meant it for evil. He meant it for good. He was able to have the spiritual ability and maturity to see that God was in control of every detail of everything that had happened to him over the last 13 years, from 17 to 30, and all that had taken place. But he was also not just say God is in control, but he also knew God cares. And God worked it for good to save more than people just than himself. And, and to have the capacity to be able to understand in bitter circumstances that God is both sovereign and good takes someone who has put themselves in God's story and sees that they have a part in God's story and they have the ability to see the big picture of what he's doing in their life in every single detail, even the bitter providences. Most people cannot get outside themselves to be able to see that reality. Joseph was able to, and he kept bitterness on the outside and never let it get on the inside. Secondly, in our outline, Israel as a nation had bitter providences. Would you turn over one book to chapter 1 of Exodus, chapter 13? So, meaning the Egyptians and the slave masters in particular, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives, there's our word, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of the work of the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So, so here's bitter circumstances. And again, the Israelites cannot control that they are slaves in Egypt. They cannot control their taskmasters. They are not responsible uh, for those things in their lives. But what they are responsible for is their response to their masters and to the Egyptians. So in the first episode or, or case study, we have bitter brothers. Now we, let me make it 21st century relevant. Now we have bitter bosses uh, that are the problem, right? So we have we have problem with bitterness in the home, and you can also be bitter at the workplace. And believe it or not, I have counseled actually quite a bit of that as well in, in over the years. And people who are very upset, angry, bitter, um, and they take it home with them from work. They're, they're, they have been looked over at their position, at their job. They didn't get the raise. They didn't get the promotion. Um, they didn't, they're not, because office politics plays there and, and you know they didn't get it because they don't know that person they're not in with them and they don't play the corporate games or whatever the case might be and they have certain expectations and requirements and their boss is harsh and and they go on and on and explain about how difficult it is and, and Israel had that Israel had can I say harsh bosses uh, that didn't care about them and, and 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 were making their lives a wreck and miserable um, but Here's the thing, and this might surprise you a little bit when you put these two things together. Um, they had horrible difficulties in facing bitter enslavement. And you would think that, like most of us, that when we're in situations like that, the best thing that we can do is just get out of them. 
I mean, just get out of them and, and, and get away from them as far as we can and not even remember it as much, as much as we can. But the strange thing is that's not what God did. Um, God did deliver them, and he brought the plagues, and he delivered them some slavery. But in doing so, here's what he did in Israel. He formed a memorial that would help them to remember all their bitterness. And we call it the Passover meal, the Seder meal. If you know anything about a Seder meal, you'll know that part of the meal, in fact, one of the main parts of the meal is what is called bitter herbs. And if you read, if you'll turn there real quick, you can see it for yourself, and this is why they do it. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 8 says, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, that would be the matzah and the lamb, and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And, and that's a command that is actually said during a Passover, if you're Jewish, during the meal. Now, the bitter herbs were not what you might think. It wasn't just a little garnish on the side of your meal where the main thing was the matzah bread and the lamb. No, there were two portions or two actual piles they would make uh, bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs were indigenous to Egypt. So every time... Uh, an Israelite would eat the Passover and they would make the bitter herbs, whether they lived in Egypt or not anymore, obviously. Um, they would remember that the herbs that they got to make it were Egyptian. And it would automatically remind them of the people who were so harsh and horrible to them. But God wanted them to remember that. The, he wanted them to remember that and he, and he put together a dietary memorial to sort of memorialize it. And so imagine you're eating the meal. There's two piles of bitterness on your plate, literally. One in the middle and one at the bottom of the plate. And you eat it at two different times in the meal. The first one you eat by itself because God wants you to remember the bitterness of what it meant to go through the suffering. And then at the bottom of your plate, later on you eat it with the matzah because God is able to take your bitterness and overturn it. And then the meal er ends with eating the lamb. And the lamb is obviously the atonement for all of it. And that's how you get past the suffering. That's how you get out of the bitterness in your life that the Egyptian slaves, because it took a lamb to get that out of them. And so here's what God does. God says, hey, I, I want to deliver you from the bitterness, but I don't want you to forget the lessons that taught you. I don't want you to forget about what it was like to be bitter and how to be treated harshly. And if you go to the other parts of the Torah, you'll see exactly why. Because God says, I want you to remember that I brought you. You were once a slave. So when you have people who are in bitterness and slavery come into you and into, you, into Israel, here's how you treat them. Because this is how I treated you. And I want you to remember what it took to get you out of your bitterness. And that was the Passover lamb. So it's amazing that God did not just say, hey, just forget about all the bitterness and all the horrible circumstances and just try to forget them and get away from them. He said, no, I memorialize them in the meal. In fact, as Christians, the new covenant Passover is to remember the suffering of Jesus and the bitter, harsh providences that were brought into his life and how he died for us. And so God says, I want you to remember them in a way that shapes and forms you and helps you to be able to love me and others. Another instance, just as a side note, um, under number two, Israel had bitter, bitter providences, is the time they came to, and you can read it for yourself, in Exodus 15, in verses 22 to 24, Israel came to, in the wilderness, to a place called Marah, and it's a Hebrew word for bitterness. 
and they came to the water and they needed it. They were very thirsty. They were out in the desert and they didn't have anything to drink and the waters were not drinkable. They were bitter. That's why they named it Mara. And their response to it was what? Well, griping, complaining, and grumbling. That's a key Old Testament phrase. Complaining and grumbling, how they didn't like it. And and God had to get to them, and God had to do some discipline in punishing them because of their bitter attitudes. And, And Paul picks up on that exact phraseology and uses to admonish New Covenant Christians in Philippians 2, 14 through 16, where he tells us that we are to be lights in the backdrop of a black universe, a dark universe. That's my translation. And then he says, and do all that you do without, what does he say? Complaining and grumbling. That's what he says. So when you're in the midst of a dark background, in other words, everything around you is bitter providences and, and, and bitter water and, and bitter arrows that have been shot at you. Here's what God says. Here's what you can't do in your response. Don't complain and don't be grumbling in your bitterness. You know, for the Israelites, um, the bitterness wasn't just a word. It was really a place. And so for them, if you, centuries later, if you look back and you say, hey, some, Israel, some Jewish person might say, oh, this is a Amara experience for you. Uh, because bitterness for them wasn't just a word or experience. It was a place. And to say Mara brought back memories of what Israel did and how they responded in a bitter circumstance when they literally needed water and it was bitter. And, you know, we have that in America or, or in, in history. You know, if you, say, if you say something about Hiroshima, people are going to know, oh, I, I know what a Hiroshima experience is. That was where we dropped the nuclear bomb. Or someone say, more particularly to Americans, you might say, hey, Twin Towers, you know. You say Twin Towers, everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. And you don't even have to say anything. It's not just an experience. It's a place. And that place is associated with that, that whole experience of whatever took place at that time. And, and so say it with them. Mara was a place of bitterness. And you can remember back in a time in your life, perhaps, where there was a place in your life, maybe it was a certain time in your marriage, or maybe it was a certain event that took place when you were growing up, or maybe it's an experience you had at your job, or maybe it was a friendship that went wrong or, or, or had all kinds of problems or some sort of relationship issue, and you could remember and you know that place. And, and it brings up memories, bitter memories, that make you almost cringe when you hear it. Here's what God says, don't gripe, Don't grumble. Don't complain about those bitter circumstances. See that God is in control and God is sovereign. And he was because he brought water out of the rock. Number three, Hannah had bitter providences. 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you turn there. You know Hannah's story. She's married to Elkanah, and he has two wives. Hannah's one of them. Peninnah is the wife of that constantly mocks her because she has children and Hannah does not. And verse 6 says, and her rival used to pro- provoke her. It means to provoke her under angry. So it wasn't just a little bit of, a, you, know, you know, a jab here and there. No, it was a constant battering of it. And it means, and it says provoked her to anger grievously, and that's the Hebrew word bitter. Uh, it, she got so angry at it. She was so often provoked about it um, that it made her bitter about her circumstances. And, that, and the circumstances were that the Lord had closed her womb. It says it twice in the passage. 
So God had brought this bitter providence and she couldn't have children. And for a Jewish woman, that was everything. That was their main thing in life. And socially, it made her outcast almost. And all the women would probably talk and whisper you know, about her. And particularly, she had to just not get it when she went into town. She got it every day because she lived with it. In fact, you leave the little phrase in there, year after year, and they went up year after year, and she provoked her year after year. Just put that in your mind. Year after year, every time they'd go up to make the sacrifices, she has children and I don't. Every year I hear the same story all year long. I hear how I'm fruitless and I, and I can't have it and I must be doing some sinful thing because God isn't giving me children year after year. And, and, and let me tell you this about, can I just have you mark this down? Know this about bitterness. You don't make bitterness in a microwave. It always slow cooks in a crock pot. It really does, right? You don't get it. It doesn't say bitterness comes day after day, you know, for a few days. No, what does it say? Year after year. So it's when, you, it's when we let things kind of add up in our lives. Someone says this and then someone does this and we get bitter. And, and then when it doesn't change and, and it doesn't happen the way we want it to, guess what? It just gets in the crock pot and it simmers and it cooks and it begins to form and shape in our lives. So we've seen bitter arrows, bitter food, and now bitter words. See how all the different ways God uses different ways to describe how bitterness is insidiously gets into your life and attacks you from all kinds of ways. But there's another one, if you'll turn over to the book of Ruth, because number four on our case study list is Naomi had bitter providences. This back a page or two, really, from 1 Samuel. Chapter 1, verse 13. Would you therefore, this is Naomi talking, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? In other words, I'm too old, I'm not having children. And here's what happened. Her husband died, and when they left, they went from Israel to Moab. And her husband died, and 10 years later, her sons died. Now, if you know anything about uh, for, uh, the uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, um, men provided, women didn't. And so the reason why a lot of times in the Bible that there were females and they were prostitutes was not because they were just morally deviant. It's because they had been widowed. And a lot of times widows became prostitutes because it's the only way they could fend for themselves. If they didn't have, so when the widow of Nain's son dies, you know why she's so upset? Not just because someone she loved died, although that's obviously true, but she's a widow. So now it means this. She had no husband and her son was helping her. Now she has no husband and no son. And now she has no one to help provide for her. She doesn't know what she's going to do. So when Jesus raises him back from the dead, it's not that she just got her son back. She got her livelihood back. She got everything back. It had personal ramifications, social ramifications. It was crucial. And, And so it is here. She doesn't have a husband now, and that was bad enough, but now she has no sons and with her to provide not only just for herself, but she's got two daughter-in-laws. And so she even, in her bitterness, tells them to go back to Moab where she knows that Chemosh, with the God that you, you alter, put your child on the altar, that's the kind of God, that's who they worship back there. But she says, I can't do anything for you. I can't, I can't give you another husband. And if I could have a child and it had it today... Are you going to wait for it to grow up? She's saying, like, there's no hope with me. It's over for me. Look what God's done in my life. I I can't help you anymore. You might as well go back. And if you can make a living out going back to Moab, better for you. 
even though it's back to false gods and everything else. So she's bitter. Um, She's bitter in her life. In fact, she tells us that in a very clear and profound way in chapter 1, verse 20. So she said to them, do not call me Naomi. In Hebrew, her name means pleasant, or we might even say sweet in our vernacular. She said, don't call me that anymore. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Sound familiar? Well, that was the place, right? Mara, it's the, it's the, the noun form of the place of the bitter waters. She says, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. And here's why. See? Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. God has put some bitter providences in my life. Now, that doesn't make it wrong. The things that have happened to her is not a sinful thing on her part. It's her response to it. And here's the problem, and I want you to catch it because what I've been saying tonight so far is what you need to keep bitterness on the outside and not let it get on the inside. You have to hold two things together. God is sovereign and God is good. And if you lose one of those, that much more easier for bitterness to get inside of you. And let me tell you this. Naomi, she believed God was sovereign because here's what she says. God has brought these bitter providences in my life. He's the one who's done it. And later on, she says, God brought me back. See, I left full, but God has brought me back empty. She's saying God has done all these things. God has caused these disasters in my life. But what she doesn't say until way later in the story when things begin to change is that God is good. She's finding it very difficult to believe at the same time that God controls and God cares. It is hard for her to put those together. And that's why I asked the question on the survey. See, we can say, okay, God, I know you're in control, but you can't care. And for the, i.e., let me give you an example. You know, when the disciples were on the sea and the storm was there and Jesus was asleep in the boat, here's what the problem was. They had a hard time believing God was sovereign because the storm is happening, the boat is filling up, and even per, for professional fishermen, it looked like they might die. So they, they struggled trusting God was in control. And, and to the same point where they had to go over and shake Jesus and wake him up because they're thinking, hey, God doesn't care. Maybe you should get up and do something. And, and so the words they wake him up with are, listen, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? See, they didn't put either one of them out there. So they, they couldn't trust God was sovereign because of the storm. Look what's happening. Look around me. And, and God, not only are you not in control, but you don't care because if you really cared, we wouldn't be in this storm. You're the one who sent us over here and you would do something about it, but you're not. And see, be careful because that could be us. We don't come out and say it that formally. God, you're not sovereign. God, you're not good. We don't say that, but we act like it. And we express it in our responses. And because we get frantic and we let anxiety take us over and we get depression, you know why? Because we think that God's not in control. Because if he was, he'd be more wise than this because I could tell him how he should do this. And this is how he should do these circumstances. And this is what the result should be. And this is the things that never should have happened in my life. And see, we let the bitter providences of our lives and the storms in our lives get inside of us. And Naomi had a struggle. And you know what? When you, let me tell you this. What happens? What happens in your life when you err on either side, either God's sovereignty or God's goodness? You know what happens? You're empty. She said, I went out full and I came back empty. L- look what she's saying. She's saying, you know what gave me fullness? 
my husband and my two sons and the, well, the good life that they gave me and the money that we had and, the li- and, and everything was going really good and God, I couldn't have asked for more. See, we don't get bitter. Do you know this? We don't get bitter when everything goes well. The song tonight, when the sun is shining down on us and everything is it ought to be. That, we don't struggle with bitterness when everything's good. It's when the bitter providences come into our lives. See, it's a test. It's a test of where we really are and what we really love. For Naomi, what gave her fullness was her husband and her sons. But when they are taken away, she should have been full still. She didn't come back empty because she had God. Don't you love what Job says? And that was the song came from Job's words. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Watch, that's sovereignty, isn't it? The Lord gives and takes away. So whether I have it or I don't have it, God is in control. But he's not done. You know what Job also says? Blessed be his name. Right? So here's what he says. Let me tell you something about my horrible tragedies and God's incredibly bitter providences of all my children, wealth, and everything. I mean, even my wife is cursing me. He goes, let me tell you, he gives and he takes away, but more than he's just some sovereign, distant deity out there on the throne controlling the universe. No, he's more. He's blessed. He's the happy God. He's the good God. Blessed be his name. I still have fullness. You know, that's what Job says in his life. So bitter providences can become bitter problems and make bitter people when we don't keep those two in balance. So let me close with the last one, Esau. Turn to the New Testament. I shocked you there. Hebrews chapter 12. Last case study. Easter, Easter, (laughs) let me get on my mind. Esau is the poster child for bitterness. He really is. And I want to use his life as our last one to ask and answer the question, how and when does bitterness become sinful? Well, let me answer with the principle I've already given you all night. Bitterness becomes sinful when it gets from the outside and gets on the inside. So what are the things that happen in our life that let that happen? How does it get from the outside to the inside? What takes place in bitter people's lives? And can I say more in particular, their hearts? Because can I tell you, that's where bitterness starts always. Bitterness is a heart issue. Proverbs 14.10 says, the heart knows its own bitterness. It all starts in the heart. Now, if you wanted to take and contrast two case studies tonight, you could take Esau that we're going to look at and contrast it with the life of Joseph, and you'll see that they both had bitter circumstances. They, all had, they both had things that didn't go right, like they planned in their life. They made, for Esau particularly, made some really bad choices in his life. But the difference mainly between them are not the circumstances, but the way they responded to them. How Joseph responded to his in a very positive way. On the other hand, Esau responded very negatively. And the Bible tells us why. And verse number 15 of Hebrews 12 reads, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Remember that. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. 
wow, this is a bad place to be. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Can I tell you what problem? Bitterness is a result of gracelessness. He fell short of God's grace. That's what it says. He didn't have the grace to do it. And let me tell you this. Bitterness comes when you do not know God or know him rightly. And that's what I've been pushing you to think tonight. When you don't know and trust his sovereignty and his goodness, when you, or perhaps you don't even know him at all, See, it's the person who, bitterness, when you have bitterness, you have, don't have grace. You cannot have them at the same time. You can't be exhibiting bitterness and gracefulness at the same time. They don't go together. And if you know anything about grace, it's the word about God's salvation and all that goes with it. See, when you're bitter, you can't be forgiving. When you're bitter, you can't be at peace. When you're bitter, you can't be someone who's uh, letting love cover as a multitude. You can't do it. Because here's what he says. You know what Esau's problem was? You know where the root of it was? He had no grace. He had no grace. And so when you don't have any grace there and the soil of your heart isn't able to take in God's grace, you know what starts growing instead? Look what he says. No root of bitterness. It's like you're planting. And I've told my, I had a garden that my parents had at a farmer's house growing up. And my job was to plant the, uh, not plant, pull the weeds. That was my job. And I had to go out on Saturdays and do it. And I remember doing it and I hated it. It was hot and I didn't like it. And so I, I did a halfway job. I really put much energy. So, so my dad brought me out. It was a Saturday. So he brought me back like Tuesday or Wednesday. And, and I said, it's not Saturday. Why are we going out again? He goes, because of the way you pull the weeds. They're already back. I go, what? Yeah. He goes, because if you only pull off the head in the sur- on the surface, you have to go below the surface. You have to get your hands dirty, and you've got to get down and pull the root of it. Otherwise, it's going to come right back. And I remember that lesson because I hated going out once a week, much less twice. You know what? Here's, what? here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, I believe Paul. Here's what he's saying. You know what? Esau never got down to the root of it. He didn't find a place for repentance. He sought after it with tears. You know why? Because in the root of his heart was gracelessness. He didn't have the ability. He, he find, tried to find repentance so there would be real change. He tried to get past it. He, he couldn't. He couldn't get down that far. And see, for us tonight, maybe some of us say, Lord, show me what the root is. Show me in my heart what's going on in my life. And, and I got to get down to the root of it. I can't just keep pulling it off on the surface. I got to get down to the root of it. What is the root of it? Well, let me tell you in Esau's life what the root of it was. Bitter people almost always focus on immediate gratification. If you, took, if you went back and took the time, and I encourage you to study it like I did, Genesis 25 and verse 31, Esau comes in from hunting one day and he's very famished and he's so hungry and he tells his brother, hey, I want you to give me some of that, and the, this is really the Hebrew, the red stew. <laughs> I don't really know what all that means, but it was delicious to him. He wanted the red stew. And you think, well, okay, no big, big, it is a big, big deal. Here's why. Because it represented a choice. He said he was so hungry that he was about to die, which was a complete over-exaggeration. But he wanted it. And in this choice, there's a line in the sand that God is drawing. It's a test for him. Here's what the test is. Is he going to choose food or is he going to choose faith? 
Now, you may say, oh, you're putting too much into that. No, I'm not, because here's what it says. The Bible says that he chose the temporal, immediate gratification over his faith. He chose the temporal, the food, over the faith. He chose the temporal over the eternal, and here's what Hebrews says, and he sold his birthright. And, and, and what he said was, in doing so, he gave a value statement of what was going on in his heart. He wanted the food that would please him in the moment more than the future and the long-term happiness and relationship with God and the blessing of the birthright. He gave it up. All the things that mattered most, he gave them up for what mattered most in the second and the moment to him. See, it was, a, it was an indication of what Esau's true love in his heart really was. And that's why the Bible says, and aren't they harsh criticisms or descriptions? Here's what it says. He was a sexually immoral person and he was ungodly. Now, I, I, you read the story of Genesis 25, you don't get that. But there's more going on in his heart. And you know what those words indicate? He had a problem in his desires. He really had a problem. You know what he wanted? He wanted what he wanted, and he wanted it in the moment. He wanted it now. He wanted instant gratification. Can I tell you this? Remember this phrase. Bitterness is always just one desire away. Bitterness is always just one desire away. When I don't get what I want, and if you're going to avoid bitterness, here's what you have to do. Hear me. You have to carefully guard your desires. You have to very carefully guard what you want. Sinful bitterness always begins with misplaced desires. Always wanting something, and it's not always that you want it and it's inherently bad to want it, but it's wanting it or desiring it improportionately, wanting it too much, wanting it out of order, um, as Augustine would say, out of a well-ordered love, and, and, and it's, a, it's a misplaced love, where you love something too little or you love something too much. Sometimes it takes the forms of unreasonable expectations that we put on others. And I've seen it in marriages where the, the, the spouse, one spouse, puts such unreasonable expectations on the husband or the opposite way around because you're my everything. And I, you, in, in the moment you disappoint me in any way, shape, or form, in the smallest things, it blows my mind because they don't realize that it's idolatry. And I've seen people who have these unreasonable expectations of their children and they want it to be, because this is the desire. This is what they want, and they have to have it now. And so people who are, you know, goes like this. It goes from, I'd like to have this, to I must have this. That's when you know you have it. I'd like to have your approval. I'd like to have your acceptance. But I have to have it. And when I don't get it, and you don't meet my expectations that I'm demanding of you, when you don't do things a certain way, see what happens? We seethe with anger um, when our expectations go unmet. And we pout and complain, and as, as the Torah says, we complain and we gossip and we even slander. Why? Because we haven't got our way. Because here's the thing about bitterness, and here's the thing about bitter, bitter people. They focus on what they want immediately. They don't see the big purpose of God. They don't see the big plan of God. All they can see is what they want right before their face. Genesis 27 says this of Esau, and he had a bitter cry, a bitter cry. He just couldn't get himself to let God change his heart. And again, can I tell you on that day, Jacob didn't take his birthright 
You know what the Bible says? He sold it. He sold it. So it wasn't Jacob who tried to take advantage of his brother. That was bad, but that wasn't the main problem because the bitter providences on the outside, they're not the main problem. It was Esau. He was willing to give it up and sell it. He regretted it, but in the moment he wanted it because that's what mattered most to him. He re- and that was the root that he was never able to get out of his life. And if you watch Esau's life, you'll find this, that it kept pro- cropping up all over his life. He never rooted it out. And bitterness beat him. If you're going to win the battle of bitterness at work, at home, at church, more importantly, in your heart, you've got to believe and keep together God is sovereign and God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this series um, on Wednesday nights on emotions. I just thank you, Lord, that you've given us the answer to our bitter problems, and that is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that included in that is our bitterness. Father, may we see more clearly than ever before tonight because we've studied your word that your hand of providence, your invisible hand of providence is always at work in our lives. Please give us eyes of faith to see that. That in doing so, we might be like the heroes in the Bible, like Joseph, who kept the bitterness on the outside and didn't let it get in his heart. God, grant us that mercy to be like that. That we might honor our Savior who died to keep bitterness on the outside. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.